Hello, lovely people, and welcome to another mailbag episode of the It's a Mimic podcast, where you never know what you're going to get, but this time we flip it like we do with all the mailbags, and we don't know what we're going to get, and that's because you guys are asking us questions. So, with this mailbag of holding, we are still uh, observing all of the COVID restrictions, which means we're all separate, so we just kind of farmed these questions out to people. We all rolled initiative ahead of time to see what would happen, what order it's all going to be in. And uh, of course, I've got OCD, so I put it in a fancy little spreadsheet. I've got all of the questions on our three regular tables, the red, black, and white. You guys know the deal at this point if you're listening to the 13th mailbag. So uh, I'm going to launch into asking the questions, and, uh, and we're going to cut away to see what people have to say. Um, for their own respective, I don't know, insane bullshit that we tend to spew at you guys. So, buckle up. I have no idea how this is going to go because I literally cannot hear five-sixths of the answers. So, um, fingers crossed that this works, and if not, this is going to be just a fucking train wreck, and that's cool too! Yay! Everyone's happy! Yay! All right, so for the first question, we've got uh, at Bona Via Danielle asks, PC signing a deal with the devil. Which is the smartest price to ask for? Let's kick it off to Terry, then Dave, and then Dan. I think for my answer to this question, it's it's not clear. Is it the price that I'm requesting? Is it a stipulation? Is it uh, what I would request that the devil's price is? But I think if it's if it's for a stipulation, which I think it is, I would request that any details of the contract must be legally binding within the the area, the county, the city, uh, wherever that that contract was uh, was signed, and that'll stop any uh, kind of otherworldly or, or hellish type uh, type laws coming into place. Uh, th- so that it must be legally binding uh, within the place that that contract was signed, or I might say that if there's any uh, any arguments about the contract at all, that they're they're discussed and it's uh, it's fought over um, in front of a jury of, of my peers, of my uh, player characters' peers, because that stands uh, a better chance of being overturned if something uh, is not to your liking. PC signing a deal with the devil, which is the smartest price to ask for? Huh. In- uh, interesting. Um. Smartest price to ask for. I mean, it depends the setting that you're in. If if you're in somewhere that uses like soul coins, maybe you know soul coin. If uh, you're somewhere uh, like doing an underwater campaign, maybe it's you know something that allows them to breathe or swim underwater or or you know swim because you only do that under water. Um, but uh, I don't know. I I don't have a solid answer for this one. To me, this one is just a Use your environment to make it interesting. So I assume when you're asking about a PC signing a deal with the devil that you are going to be the DM of that um, entire encounter and you want to know what you should get the devil to ask for. Well, um, what you need to do is need to make sure that the offer on the plate is specific enough to give a very direct 
path for you to kind of encourage your players to think well ambiguous enough for you to manipulate that answer later like um you don't want to say that guy over there joe his heart um the directness is something you'd find in archfey not devils um what you want to say is something like uh a cherished friend's heart or a beloved companion's future or something like that. Oh, this is off the top of my head. But um, those would be, as a DM, the smartest way for you to be able to manipulate this judgment to the devil's advantage. Question number two is at Sprite underscore the underscore peanut. It's an interesting way to spell peanut. Asks how to play non-combatants. We're going to kick this off to Brad and then Megan and ooh, and then me. I'm going to wrap it up. I'm not entirely sure what's meant by this question. Uh, if you mean non-combatants as in passive characters, or if you mean non-combatants as in NPCs that are following the party around. So I'll give you an answer for both. Um, for playing a passive character, you can really play a support role while not actually being an aggressor. If you don't want to necessarily be involved directly in the combat, that doesn't mean that you can't be buffing or healing or even charming um, your opponents. You know, using spells in ways that can manipulate the battlefield, maybe manipulate the opponents or support your party. I think that's the best way to make a non-combatant character, and I think you can really make an interesting character out of that. One who maybe has taken an oath of nonviolence, but still understands that there needs to be action taken to prevent greater evil. And I think it's a really interesting character to play and a good way to play it. If you simply mean non-combatant NPCs, then I think that it's a great way to have them effectively follow the party around. When combat comes, maybe they take off and hide. Maybe they have some sort of way of protecting or cloaking themselves uh, it's really, there's lots of ways to take it. Okay, you guys might not know this about me, but I actually started playing D&D as non-combatant characters, which was quite the struggle for me because I was just learning the game, learning the mechanics, learning how to roll dice, as well as trying to be able to play like heavy political characters in a campaign. And that alone was one of the most frightening things that I've ever done. But honestly, if you really, really want to well-round your D&D campaign and your knowledge and your skills, I definitely recommend playing a non-combatant um, just for either like a small campaign, um, just to see if you like it, as well as just to give something else a, a try um, because it definitely makes you flex a lot of the skills that you wouldn't normally utilize in a D&D game. And honestly, it's not as hard once you get into it. It just requires um, a little bit more talking, a little bit more one-on-one -on -one time with the DM, not necessarily in-game, but maybe out of game, just to kind of chat about where you want your character to go and help you learn how to portray what your character wants. Um, and honestly, a lot of your job is stopping the combatants from doing stupid things. Um, so just mentally prepare for that. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I think every time I played a non-combatant, I was usually following another character or PC around being like, please don't do anything stupid. So just be mentally prepared that that might be your role if you decide to play a non-combatant, but I do highly recommend it. And honestly, if that's the kind of game style you want, um, that would be probably the easiest way to go. Just connect yourself to another character, um, and be a part of their story and help flesh it out. Honestly, playing non-combatants is really difficult to do so much of dungeons and dragons is focused on the idea of 
combat and the combat round, the six-second round, initiative order and things like that. So if you're going to play a non-combatant, you have to find a way to contribute in every round of combat without doing damage. Now, sometimes that's easy to do with buff spells or debuff spells. Sometimes you can run around and sneak and do things like use ropes to trip people or throw nets. If that's the kind of character you want to play, I suggest talking to your DM and the other players to let them know because you're throwing off the action economy by doing this. While you are definitely still there and going to take damage on a regular basis, there are four or five or six people around the table, whatever it is, and so you divide the number of attacks and roughly the number of, or the amount of damage equally among everybody, more or less, you can expect um, to still take that damage. You're not causing damage, so you are not knocking players out or NPCs or monsters or whatever out quickly enough. The problem with playing non-combatants is every combat takes longer, and while the solution may uh, still be there and it may be more interesting and it may be more fun, the DM and the other players are going to have to adjust how they're thinking. You take essentially a CR4 encounter and you turn it into a CR3 three and three-quarter encounter because you're playing a non-combatant. I don't recommend doing this. Uh, it, it can be fun. I have done it myself in the past. Um, but it's a quick way to piss off the other players. And it's a quick way to, uh, to get imbalanced encounters that are either going to kill you really quickly because you didn't knock out the bad guys quickly enough. Or, you, uh, or the encounters just take forever. So I guess my big question for you is, how do you justify playing a non-combatant in an actually difficult, scary, dangerous world. At some point, everyone is going to ball up their fist. What are the limits for the violence that your character is going to commit? And don't just say he took a vow of peace or he is going to be non-violent and that's just how he is and where he comes from because everybody has that limit. And you need to be very clear with the other players and your DM what that limit is so that they can at least enjoy watching you cross that line sometimes. Don't keep it a secret. Have it be part of the story if you're going to do it, but know the limits that you're playing within. Man, what a sexy voice that last guy had. Alright, question number three is from Miss Rogue 1701 from Reddit. And she asks, What is your opinion on Grung, Lokatha, and Tortal. So these are the monstrous races that you can play from these weird little PDF supplements that are semi-official, I guess? Anyways, we're going to kick it to Megan, then myself, and then Terry. I honestly don't really have an opinion on these. Actually, no, maybe I do. Grungs are those toads that you lick to get high, right? I'm pretty sure. <laughs> I wonder if anybody's actually tried that in a D&D campaign. If so, please let us know and comment. I think it would be hilarious to hear the story of how they reacted. Um, otherwise, I think they add a little bit to the world in the sense where I imagine the Dragon Ball Z campaign world, where pretty much 90% of their regular, you know, common folk are just random animals strewn about the world. So that's kind of what I picture in my head. Plus, I am actually in a campaign right now where I am playing a halfling character whose best friend is a giant turtle, and it is makes for very, very fun cinematic enjoyment. So I have nothing against them. Uh, and when they are in my campaigns, I really do enjoy them around. So 
definitely look more into them. Honestly, I fucking love Grung. I think they're flavorful. I think they're colorful. I think they're so neat. I have injected them into a couple of one-shots of my own, and I think they're a load of fun. I love Tortles as NPCs, the old, wise leader. I, I just think of Kung Fu Panda, right? Like, that's where I'm getting my Tortle shit from. A lot of people go to Ninja Turtles. I, I prefer just with the, the wisdom and the, I don't know. I just, I like them better for being slow. I also like to treat them like they talk like Ents when they're NPCs, but that can get fucking tedious around the table. So I will have a Tortle go, Well, you see, I was thinking and that's going to be funny once or occasionally whenever someone's in a hurry and they start talking like that but you're going to replicate that scene from Zootopia with the sloths that was just so frustrating everybody sat back and laughed but think about being in that scenario when it's first person or not third person anymore people stop laughing so when it comes to turtles I like to do that but then I will quickly lapse into saying, and so it takes him a very long amount of time to get across the fact that he agrees with your idea. And I will then narrate what he had said instead of role-playing it out just for flow of the game. And as far as Lokatha go, <laughs> I, do, I, I just, I, I do not fucking understand the point of Lokatha. So look, we're going to dive into all of these at some point. These weird freaking fish creatures. I don't know why we need them when we've got tritons and merfolk, which are super fucking under-supported. We've got all sorts of, um, of sea elves and, uh, sawagan and, like, th there's just, there's so many different aquatic creatures already that are not fleshed out. Why did we need this as well? Uh, because of the fun little PDF that was made? Sure, I like it. There is a reason that this is not published in one of the books yet, because, um, it just doesn't seem that, that fucking useful. As an NPC, sure, I would think twice about playing one of these as a player. If someone has, that's great. I'm not sure I could. Uh, my opinion on Grung, uh, Lakotha, and, uh, Tortle. Uh, I don't really have a positive or negative opinion on, on those creatures. I think, uh, everything in D&D has its place and there's a time when you can use them if you if you don't want to use them don't use them but there's there's funny quirks and characteristics about them where they have their rightful place i think my only opinion is um that the, the guys know this is i even though this is a fantasy game i like it to have a sense of realism to it so me privately and quietly i don't get kicks out of the the ninja turtle joke um i i don't get kicks out of things when they're too corny so I, I picture these as, as, as real creatures and those characteristics um, need to be realistic for me. And that's how I get much more immersed in the game. You know, the, the, the guys know that I don't like I don't like too many puns. I don't like too many corny things, uh, which is which is strange because in in my real life, that's how I act. So. OK, and now we are going to jump into our very first question from Alexander, another Skip Davis, because we always have something from him. And he asks, what would you guys play at a con? So a convention. What kind of character would you guys play? Uh, let's toss that out to Brad, Dan, and Dave. I've actually never been to a con. I'm not really a big con guy. I don't like the big crowds. I don't like strangers. <laughs> I have stranger danger fear. 
Um, but that being said, if I did play at a con, I think I'd want to play a character that something like a bard or a supportive character, because everyone's going to try and make these big damage-dealing munchkin builds, I feel like, for cons. Uh, I feel like roleplay kind of gets thrown out the window at cons, just because there's not a lot of time, and people just want to play combat, if we're being honest. Um, I think it's a weakness of cons, but I think that's probably the reality of the situation. But I think I'd play a bard, something that uh, was supportive, a lot of buff spells, a lot of healing, probably, and just something that could carry the role-playing when necessary, be a bit of a face for the party. Uh, and yeah, that's, I think, what I would play at a con. It would also probably have some sort of spell to make uh, the stench disappear. I mean, other than 5e, I've played Warhammer tournaments, and I've played the odd Pokemon card tournament way back in the day, and I've done a couple, like, mini, not really serious Magic the Gathering tournaments way back in the day, but... Uh, other than 5e and and not that other stuff i i i don't know man um if i was to choose a specific character i would play if i was playing uh, a game at a convention i got to go with my good old fashioned oscar the half orc barbarian um he's easy to play easy to get in that mindset and really really fun for the kind of high octane adventures that con games tend to be um, I definitely wouldn't want to play something high int that would control a table because I'm not an asshole. And I understand that other people might be at that table playing D&D for the first time. So, yeah, don't be an asshole. If you're going to play a at, if you're going to play a D&D game at a convention, play something that won't demand a lot of table time, if that makes any sense. Uh, I would play chauffeur at a con and drop everybody else off and go home. Uh, I don't like large groups. I don't like necessarily uh, being put on the spot. I don't really like being the center of attention. Uh, I would much rather uh, sit up at my little command center in my room at my desk and uh, hang out and play games online with my friends. I have not been to and don't see myself uh, going to... Uh, any kind of con, um, because I just don't see that there are any pros. Up next is Jeffrey W. from Facebook, who asks, What is each co-host's spirit animal? Answer for someone else, not yourself. So that'll be me, Dave, and Terry answering this one. Each host's animal, uh, spirit animal, let me see. Uh, if we can't do ourselves then um let's say uh dave is going to be a um a badger because those things are fucking vicious actually no yeah i was gonna say a skunk because of the stink but that's it's not quite fair to skunks so i was thinking of the, that little thing that sits in the corner that's kind of um unobtrusive that's that just minding his own business but if you fuck it off you are going to be torn to shreds that's dave his spirit animal is a badger. Uh, Brad's spirit animal is a uh, salmon because he instinctively knows how to go home. Brad, buddy, you need to hang out more. Uh, Dan's spirit animal is... I'm just trying to think what spirit animal just has complete fucking anxious sweats all the time. Like I'm thinking some sort of... Dan's spirit animal is a gopher. Popping the head up, looking around, freaking out, and disappearing back into his hole again. Love you, Dan. Um, Terry's 
uh, Terry's spirit animal is almost definitely a seagull. He wants it to be a hawk. He wants it to be like an eagle or a falcon, but he is a seagull because he is uh, flapping around. He's bigger than a lot of the others, and he's going to strut his shit. I always see seagulls around crows, like, and all the crows hop away. When Terry walks into a room, you fucking know it. He commands respect. But in the end, he just wants his shit, and he's going to get out. He's going to, this is mine, fuck off. Terry is specifically one of the seagulls from Finding Nemo if they had more than one one phrase to say. So, um, and the last spirit animal is, okay, for Megan, um, is... Um, a lioness because, uh, she scares me. So for this one, uh, I mean, Terry is obviously a wild stallion, uh, especially before he cut his long hair, you know, he had his, his, you know, warrior mane, uh, hanging off, uh, the backside of his head. Like, I mean, that, that's, that's Terry right there. Um, Dan is a worker bee, harmless. Yet efficient, uh, but you know he does what he's got to do, and then you know he gets it done, and uh, and you can always kind of count on him for getting it done. Uh, Adam is some sort of creature that makes sure he gets his way. Maybe, maybe that's what it is. If Dan is a worker bee, Adam is the queen bee. That's that makes sense to me. Oh, I won't name a spirit animal for for everybody. For for every host that we have, but I'll do. Uh, let's do, let's do Adam and Dave. Uh, Adam is very clever, very analytical, um, but not even just with with numbers and those kinds of things. That that analytical side of his brain transfers over to people. He's very aware of how people act, uh, what they're doing, uh, certain techniques that they may use in conversation or in their personality that they, they may not even know themselves. He knows if people are diverting questions, if they're um, maybe not sure about certain aspects of things. So that that smart analytical thinking is it leans me towards like coyote, but coyotes are pack animals and Adam's social, but he has... He's happy to be alone for long periods, so maybe more like a fox. Adam is like a fox. Dave, Dave as I know him, since I've met Dave, has always been quiet, shown signs of compassion, um, care, um, doesn't need to be the center of attention. He's happy, happy just to be involved, will go along with jokes. Um, Dave is like a panda, I suppose. He, he's friendly, he's not aggressive. Uh, I don't know. It'll go along with whatever you put in front of him. So Adam is a fox. Dave is a panda. Question number the sixth at Spidey underscore Rich asks, If you had an iconic spell, one everyone thinks of you when it was cast, what spell would it be? Dan, Megan, and Brad, what do you got? Oh, ha, ha, ha. Adam can speak to this one, but uh, Fireball, I, I even though I think I did it with a Scorching Ray at the time, but uh, Fireball, um, or it might have been a Burning Hands. Anyways, spells that create fire that you could accidentally target your party with uh, tend to fit my bill quite well, mostly because I've done it. And Adam's first game he ever played with me, I killed his character with an errant, I'm, I'm leaning more towards Burning Hands now. So, um, it's, it probably burning hands. I mean, 
you can't go wrong with a good evocation spell unless, of course, you target your party members. But, I mean, I'm not really all that sorry. Adam from 20 years ago was a pain in the ass, and his character probably deserved to die. Adam probably did something like kick me in the nuts the day before, so I don't know what he did to deserve it, but his character probably deserved it. So, for me, I have often played paladins in my last couple of years, so I feel like if I just start a sentence with, so I'm going to add a smite, that's pretty much my <laughs> my symbol of my own personal character otherwise i'm pretty sure every character ever played has had misty step in some way shape or form whether they were actually a character that's supposed to have misty step or one that just got it because a dm required that we be able to travel a little bit faster or be able to utilize um moving around so i feel like no matter what i've played i've been able to misty step and i feel like i wish that i could misty step in real world in real life um just to escape grapples and things like that i think that'd be hilarious I don't know that I necessarily have a spell, like a signature spell, but I think my favorite kind of damage, I love lightning damage and thunder damage. So in that sense, things like lightning bolt, call lightning, uh, chain lightning, things like that. Those are kind of my go-to spells. I love playing characters that have the ability to use spells that do lightning damage. Um, not said if I was to create a spell that would personify me as a person, as a signature for Brad. I think it would be a spell of blending in. I think I would create a spell where you're not invisible. You're not making yourself disappear. You're not necessarily disguising yourself. People will see that you're there, but they just won't consider you even to be a threat or even a major part of it. You're kind of like in the background, almost like an extra in a movie. A spell that kind of messes with people's mind where they'll be like, yeah, I think I saw him, but I don't really know. He didn't really do anything. It'd be a great way to just kind of make your way through a crowd or infiltrate maybe a chamber or something like that. Um, I think that'd be a really interesting spell and something that I feel like would personify me pretty well. I like to just kind of blend in and be part of the scenery. Ooh, our first double Jeffrey W from Facebook again asks, would you rather fight 100 duck sized horses or one horse sized duck? And as a bonus, Crystal P from Facebook asked a follow-up question. Would you ride a horse-sized duck into battle? Terry, Dave, and Megan, what do you think? I would rather fight 100 duck-sized horses, and I'll tell you why. Because a single horse-sized duck, uh, I would be at an extreme disadvantage. The, the, the flapping, the flapping, the noise... Um, there, there's no way that physically I'm going to be able to beat that. Whereas I can, uh, with a, a hundred duck-sized horses, I can uh, 300 Leonidas hot gates, that shit. All I need is a doorway to stand on the other side of, uh, or, or maybe even a smaller opening, a, a dog flap, uh, a cat flap, sorry, cat flap. Uh, and I can put myself into a position where I can handle those things one at a time. I can just friggin' uh, just punt those things one at a time. Uh, I've got a much better chance of winning i think in life you should always play the odds so i would fight 100 duck-sized horses and for the bonus question uh yeah i would ride a horse-sized duck into battle and uh, and i'll tell you for why um the humans are not very good at uh, reacting to things 
in the moment. We always have our plans. We always know exactly what we're going to do. And if you ride a horse-sized duck in battle that's flapping like crazy, so stopping you from executing your plan at the same time is creating an incredible amount of noise. Uh, we know that a, a, a duck-sized duck is, is loud enough on its own. A horse-sized duck, the noise and the, and, and the trauma that's going to cause to your head in the middle of a battle, you're not going to be able to hear instructions. You're not going to know what you need to do properly. You're not going to be able to act out your plan because of the flapping. Uh, these things can fly away and then return if it's not going well for them. Uh, this would be an incredible mount. I would absolutely ask that. All right. So as I'm sure this should be no surprise to anybody, uh, I hunt. And one of the things that I hunt are ducks. Uh, I have been up and close and personal with ducks. I have, how to put it nicely, parted them out. Uh, let me tell you, they got sharp little teeth and big long bills and their wings are big and strong. I do not want to come across one horse-sized duck. Even with a sword, that thing will mess you up. Uh, however, I mean, what do horses have? They kick and they bite. But if they're duck-sized, I'm just going to walk through them with my pair of steel-toe boots and just mow them down, stomp them to pieces, much like I would with 100 duck-sized ducks. So absolutely 100 duck-sized horses. But for the bonus, would I ride a horse-sized duck into battle? Yeah. Who says no to that? I feel like I would want to fight 100 duck-sized horses. Not necessarily because I think it's going to be easier, but because I just want to see it. Tiny, like, plastic horses come to life nightmare style is actually what I'm thinking of. I'm thinking more haunted mansion nonsense and hilarity versus, like, a hundred tiny duck-sized horses running around a field, if that makes sense. So um, it's actually quite frightening to me, but I still want to see it happen. In a bizarre twist of fate, our next question is from Crystal P. Again, who asks, if you were a beer, what kind of beer would you be? Megan, Dan, and Brad. Why don't you guys answer? We all know that Terry would be some sort of pale ale. I feel like my signature beer that I usually drink in the presence of other people is actually like specifically a lavender sour. Um, I don't know. I love sour beers and I feel like it matches my sour personality. Um, also, lavender just gives it a nice classy touch to it. So I feel like that describes me quite nicely. I mean, I want to say a stout. My favorite beer is a good hearty stout. Adam brought over these chocolate rye lagers that were really really good too and i that and like guinness is a good reliable beer that is like i i would love to say that but let's be completely honest i'm probably a bud light i'm i'm just not strong pale and generally flavorless if i were a beer i think i'd be a lager something easygoing goes just kind of with a nice easy day something you sip on it doesn't doesn't provide a lot of robustness or flavor but it's pleasant it's enjoyable and honestly on a hot day it's exactly what you want kind of that nice a place of rest something to make you feel relaxed i think that's the kind of beer i would be either that or an ipa just because ipa is my favorite but that's a personal taste at Nick underscore Long asks, 
can you give us a summary of your current campaign, like some of the plot and character backstory? We're going to kick this out to Dave, then myself, and then Brad. Uh, all right, so the current campaign I'm doing is the Dungeon of the Mad Mage. I don't really want to spoil it in case anyone else uh, is working their way through it right now. I, I am also only on second level. Uh, I'm DMing it, but I haven't read that far ahead yet. So I'm not sure I can give you the best breakdown of that one. Uh, however, I was going to run a Christmas one-shot uh, for for my my friends. I was going to get a couple other people in on it, but it just didn't work out. Uh, I did not end up running it, but it was going to be simple. The one you always see, and what I was going to do is save Santa. Uh, Mrs. Claus was going to approach the party and ask them to take care of the the bad guy that had had captured Santa. Uh, and along the way, they were going to run into bah humbug bears and ornamentacores uh, and silver grells uh, and potentially uh, the eight pain deer uh, who each had different uh, abilities. Dasher obviously could double move. Uh, Dancer had a perform check thing that I was going to do. I mean, you guys get the idea, right? So uh, that's kind of the most recent thing that I've put together uh, for for my guys. All right. I'm going to try to do this by the broad strokes because I could get really fucking granular into this. Um, We've played our campaign for three years, and it's actually been two separate campaigns. Dan is prepping another mini campaign to go in the middle of it, and then we're doing another at least one. There's been a number of one-shots in the world, but here is the general plot and uh, backstory of the campaign. Um, I was unhappy with the settings that uh, Dungeons & Dragons have provided us, so I made my own homebrew world. We've talked about that um, kind of in passing all the way through the last hundred or whatever episodes. But here, here's the deal. I created the first world that the gods made. I created where the gods started from the very first world within the multiverse. Uh, and it has no limits. It is endless and infinite. Uh, it has only humans because they hadn't thought to make anything else besides these bipedal intelligent creatures. They made one and that was it. There's no magic in the world because the gods have left and they didn't leave any magical essences behind. There were gods and demigods and they all fucking left. But because there is an eternity and it is entirely boundless, there's enough space for everyone to do their own thing. So it is a generally peaceful world full of all the different kinds of terrain that you can think of as the gods warped and shifted and and changed the world the way that they wanted to. They were essentially um, in sandbox mode, making it and dropping a whole bunch of animals down. And then everything kind of hit its equilibrium and balanced some unknown number of generations ago, and it's fine. The gods went out and they created more worlds. And this is where we got all the different D&D worlds, but also literally every world in existence. Uh, like, this story will cover marvel and dc it'll cover star trek it'll cover absolutely everything it's it these are the original gods that made the real world everything okay when they did that they took essences of themselves to create that's one of the deals you cannot create something from nothing but gods can pluck aspects and essences and pieces of themselves out to make new things but as they go they diminish themselves in the process This is why we have different lightning gods. The different gods of the different elements are out there and they're plucking themselves out and warping and twisting them in different ways, sending them out to see what this creation makes. But it got to the point where there was nothing left. And so the only gods that hadn't done this were the overseer, who does not interact with the multiverse at all, but sees and knows all, 
and the goddess of death, who can't create, can only reap. She transfers people from life into the afterlife, but also how often do you hear that, oh, if you, if, if a demon dies in the abyss, for example, they die, die. Okay, great. Where the fuck do they go then? Well, they get reaped. Oblivion. Done. Nothing left. So the goddess of death is the only god left and is largely hated by fucking everyone. So the story in my world is, that's all the backstory. The story in my world is the goddess of death is tired of this and wants to hit the restart button. She doesn't want to be hated anymore. She wants to be loved. She misses her sister, the goddess of life, because the two of them walked hand in hand for the longest time, but the goddess of life kept diminishing over and over and over again. Everyone resents the goddess of death, and she's just upset about it. So, she is hitting the reset button. She's not evil. She's just tired of being alone. Now, there is one other god that, uh, like, major god, capital G, capital O, capital D, that exists out there, and that is the anti-god, when all the gods decided to get together and make a new god from all the parts of them, and he's just pure chaos. Uh, they didn't know what to do with him, so they locked him in his own universe, and he's been waiting for a way to get out. That's going to be important here in a sec. So... When all the gods left the original plane, they locked it down. No one can get in or out. So it has stayed pristine. However, there's multiverse hopping all over the place through uh, pop culture and through different kinds of literature and whatnot. So I wanted to honor that and have things still be able to jump from Eberron to, to Theros to the Forgotten Realms to Greyhawk or whatever. But the goddess of death needs to hit the reset button that exists within this original realm. So she's looking for a way in. In order to do that, she's gotten a number of different, um, like, generals, including uh, Rahadin from Curse of Strahd, who survived our Curse of Strahd campaign um, somehow. And uh, one of our player characters that died, his name is Dasher, and he has now been reborn as a, almost like a planeswalker from Magic the Gathering, where he is just an eternal trickster being that exists. He's got almost godlike powers. Um, and he would be, if I were to build him, he'd be like level 45. He's just so fucking powerful. And he is not bound by linear time. So he can see forward and backward. And so he's a real piece of shit to deal with. And he mocks my players consistently. So there are these, these lieutenants, essentially, that are hopping around trying to find a way in. Every time that they try to find a way into the material plane, the, the prime material plane, um, which it's called Kryle, by the way. Um, every time they try to get into Kryle, they end up creating a small portal, a rip. I want you to think about uh, someone who was poking a finger at a plastic shopping bag. And every once in a while, they push so hard that it puts a hole in. These create portals which suck things in, but they're one-way portals into the prime material plane. So now all of a sudden, in Kryle, all over the world, which is eternal and infinite, portals are opening up from all of these other planes... And there is shit pouring in to the world. Magic and technology, artifacts, heroes, villains, monsters, dragons. And some of the aspects of the gods that have been left behind are starting to wake up. Some of the little bits and pieces, the essences, the echoes, the after effects of their presence are starting to come to life again. So the campaign starts with the players getting sucked through one of these portals by accident, and ending up in this plane. You show up unconscious, you don't know what the deal is. There's mostly humans here, but it's been happening for a while now. We did the Curse of Strahd campaign, and then I took over and I pushed all of the characters 
um, all the players into this where they ran around they ran a little campaign where they were trying to um, defeat the goddess of death that's the big thing is we, we got to stop her we got to get to the bottom of this um, and then we got interrupted partway through the campaign so I set up who all the villains were and I had the villains win so then we did a second campaign, which was going to be darker. And it was going to be um, kind of like on um, rivers, but it was film noir, but everything is like floating cities and pirate ships. There was treasure maps, uh, but it's also very film noir. It, it's I wanted to really invoke that kind of 1940s feel of high adventure or um, the, the darkness of a Humphrey Bogart kind of movie. I don't think I really got what I needed out of it. And I'm eager to return to that style sometime in the future. But they ended up accidentally summoning a bunch of gods in a few minor gods that I had created. Uh, Demogorgon showed up, which was a bad thing. This anti-god has come as well, but the avatar of him, because the realm itself can't hold a god. If they do, the, the realm falls. So they were running around and their mission, the player's mission was to essentially bring back the heroes from the previous campaign so that they can actually defeat the goddess of death. They did, but they all died in the process. The next campaign is going to start off at Portal 1, where my heroes are going to come through and the players are going to land in this realm that has never seen magic before. They're going to do a, probably a little bit of time hopping and whatnot because I want them to um, experience the world before magical artifacts were there where they are superheroes at level 1. But then monsters come in and it's going to be hard mode and I want them to know that this is going to be hard mode. And their job is going to be to try to stop this because in the last campaign where they resurrected the heroes, the heroes essentially um, are out of commission. They have to recover. So the, the next campaign is going to be them picking up where these heroes left off, kind of passing the torch now with the, these uh, returned heroes' knowledge, some of their allies, some of their items, so that they can go off and they can fight. And they're going to fight their characters from the last campaign, who all died and have been warped by the goddess of death. Eventually, the long game is they're going to have to figure out what to do once the goddess of death is defeated, and how to handle this world and the overseer and magic should they hit the restart button on a corrupted, dying world and existence, because entire planes of existence have been wiped out now by the goddess of death. She has just outright fucking destroyed the Feywild. It just does not exist anymore. Greyhawk, gone. I believe the Plane of Air is gone as well. And that's just from the standard D&D shit. So um, things are getting bad. They're going to continue to get worse because they can't leave. They can't stop the Goddess of Death stomping around out there. They've got the Avatar of the Anti-God here, as well as some major players that are... Um, that are familiar to them as being villains from previous campaigns that have sided now with the goddess of death with the promise that they will retain their lives and memories after the reboot. So it's heavy. I wanted to have a lot of moral quandaries and I wanted to make it um, actually fucking matter and not just, can you lift the curse? Can you steal the thing? Can you stop the war? I wanted to, I didn't just want the apocalypse. I wanted oblivion. To be the threat. And one of the questions that they ran up against repeatedly is, is oblivion better than living under tyrannical rule? They struggled with that in the last um, uh, campaign. 
that is going to be a major theme coming forward. Current campaign. Well, that's kind of an awkward question. Um, it's been brought up on the podcast a few times, but it's the campaign I inherited from Dan. It's uh, the Clear Cut campaign. Dan started the campaign with an invasion of dragon eggs dropping onto the town of Clearcut, uh, and then basically left it open from there. Our group, unfortunately, has only played a couple times since then, and between people having babies and COVID and everything else, the group has kind of been on hiatus. But the best way to describe the campaign, it is a dragon campaign. The party is currently there waking their way through a swamp to find a black dragon, specifically the black dragon egg that fell from the sky. Um, the eggs are... Players, stop listening. You know who you are. The eggs are uh, basically the result of cultists calling on Tiamat for power. Each egg contains a dragon of various powers, and should the egg be allowed to hatch, it will wreak havoc on the local area. The player's goal is to uh, capture the eggs and either bring the eggs themselves back to the controllers, which they haven't actually met yet, or just simply to kill the dragon or smash the egg to prevent Tiamat herself from invading the plains. Um, honestly, I haven't actually been able to plan that far ahead for the campaign, but that's kind of where it's going. Yeah, uh, we have a party of, what are we now, five players, I believe, but they we usually only have three to four at any given session. Um, we have a human fighter, not a boring character, by the way, can be really interesting. We have a half-elf, I believe it's half-elf blade singer. We have a human barbarian, and... Oh, sorry, Tyler, I forget what your character... Oh, uh, Dragonborn. It was a monk, I believe, who just came back because Adam happened to kill half of the PC characters and he had to create new ones after his betrayal. It got ugly, it got messy, and lots of people died. Okay, we're hitting the halfway mark now with RPG underscore Yogi from Instagram, who we absolutely love and who asked us actually probably the most important question of the day. When was the last time you peed in a pool? This will go out to Dan, Terry, and myself. Uh, I mean, I'm not going to put this out there on the internet, Yogs. Uh, but uh, here, let's say this. Um, I'm not much of a swimmer. I don't really go to pools, so I don't pee in the pool. However, uh, I do go to a lake uh, three or four times in the summer and... I mean, when you gotta go, you gotta go, right? The last time I peed in a pool. I can't remember. I know I was an adult. I don't know off the top of my head. As an adult, and likely drunk, and I think it was probably more like... It probably wasn't a pool, it was maybe more like a... I don't know. I peed in a lot of lakes, but you're allowed to do that. Well, I don't know if you're allowed to do that, but it's accepted. It's socially accepted. I don't know. As an adult... I was definitely in my 20s. I'm in my 30s now, but I haven't peed in a pool um, as an adult in my 30s. I assume you mean like when you go to the pool and you're just standing in the middle of the pool and everybody's swimming around you and then you just kind of like let loose? Nah, man. Nah, I, I don't play that way. I absolutely do not. I think that's gross. I don't want to be swimming through my own pee. When I pee in a pool and the people in the pool, I stand on the side of the pool and I just let loose. And it pisses them off. But I mean, fuck, man. That's what you get for going to a public pool. At Risen with Chris T. Ask, I'm kidding. It's Risen with Christ. I know. I know. It's just, just a little joke. Everybody come. Put the pitchforks down. 
at Risen with Christ asks, What are your favorite resources from previous editions that don't have a 5e version available? And how do you compensate for its absence? If you go without, adapt, use an alternative. Dan, Megan, and Dave, what do you have to say about this? Okay, so this one's going to be a little bit of a longer answer. Um, I really like Deities and Demigods from AD&D. Um, that's really informed a lot of my... Uh, pantheon building and fun and interesting ways to build a pantheon mostly just for the details to put in there um theros has really helped with that that's already in fifth edition but we're talking previous editions so um the ultimate equipment guide um which i believe is it's either 3.5 or pathfinder to be honest uh there's one in both of them but uh that tends to be a great source for fun and interesting items um, that you can really translate easily to 5e. Like anything from 3.5 is going to be a little bit underpowered when it comes to 5e. So I would definitely bring them in without hesitation because they're not going to really throw off the balance of the game that much, depending on the item you bring in. But uh, the Ultimate Equipment Guide is pretty good. And just to throw one out there that's maybe a bit obscure, I really like the uh, Unearthed Arcana book that Monty Cook put out for um, 3.5. This had interesting new weapons, interesting new races, uh, and some different looks at magic, like... Uh, command word magic uh rule sets that because it's also 3.5 or third edition translate very well to fifth so um i would definitely look at that as well um it's comp how to compensate its absence in 5e currently i mean 5e has uh they've leveled the playing field with all the numbers so a lot of these interesting weapons and magic items are really, really easy to build because this the the, the level of standard is, is a lot clearer depending on what you're looking at, right? And you don't have to worry about generating a specific item price or, or whatnot. Um, I also like to go to this actually here's here's one for magic items, go to the spell compendium from 3.5 because grabbing a random spell from 3.5 and just putting it on a magic item as a three times a rest use item or or something along those lines um that will really really help you generate fun unique items that your party won't expect um and when you are trying to run interesting games i find a lot of the stock DD magic items they kind of fall flat so this is a good way to keep things interesting um and yeah, when I have to compensate these like cherished things that aren't in 5e yet, one, have some patience. As we know, bloat is going to eventually happen in the edition and the rule sets are going to progress to the point where they're just going to scrap it and make sixth edition. Since that's not where we're at now, have some patience um, and really adapt or use alternative options uh as you can because it's easy to do in fifth and as i said before they've leveled off this playing field i'm sorry there are other additions weird uh the book that i use the most outside uh, of 
5e was probably uh, Secrets of Zendrick uh, out of the 3.5 edition. I did a lot. I spent a lot of time with my party and my guys over on Zendrick, uh, and not just while I was DMing. I had another guy who was DMing for me uh, that sent us over there as well, and that's kind of where I fell in love with the setting. Uh, Eberron's great. Zendrick is better, uh, if that makes sense. I mean, other than that, a lot of stuff I pulled just out of pop culture. I did a, uh, a, I guess I call it a campaign. I mean, we did multiple sessions of it. It was bad, though. What we did was they were trying to find the essence of giants. Uh, and what I kind of did is, as you guys probably know, I like Magic the Gathering. So uh, I kind of associated each kind of giant with a color. So, I mean, hill giants were green. Uh, stone giants were black. Fire giants were red. Frost were blue. And... Uh, uh, cloud giants were were white, and then at the end of that, once they had the essence, uh, there was the the X factor, the the storm giants. Uh, but I mean, for the for the hill giants, uh, they ended up just climbing like Aztec temples in the middle of Zendrick. There's tons of those around. I mean, that's pretty standard. Uh, I mean, I didn't really have to steal that from anywhere. The the stone giants, uh, they had to go to the Valley of the Crescent Moon and get in, and they had three challenges to to overcome and i mean i saw that right out of indiana jones the frost giants that one they went to the south of zendrick and found an old whaling station where the frost giants were and i stole that from one of those forget i think it was the first alien versus predator uh i might be wrong on that but like that i think it was it was definitely one of the alien versus predator i'm not sure if it was the first one or not uh, the fire giants they had to infiltrate a mountain and get rid of stuff into the flames. I mean, that's Mountain Doom right there. And the Cloud Giants, it was Jack and the Giant Beanstalk. It was real friggin' easy. Uh, of course, there was the Storm Giant that came down and they defeated him. And he had two iron flasks. And they opened the wrong one and released the Tarrasque upon the world. Uh, and then they opened up the other one and released an ancient gray dragon uh, whose name was Ugin, which again, I stole that right out of Magic the Gathering. He's the big daddy of all the, the dragons. And then uh, the adventures were supposed to, at that point, follow him over to Argonison, where they ended up uh, each, I mean, there were five of them, so they each got their own color of dragon uh, that they could command, and then they ended up having to unveil the secrets of the uh, Warforged while on Argonison, which led them to having to imbue their souls uh, into Warforged bodies. Uh, which was kind of what I was getting at with the, uh, the the actual forges. They were just imbuing souls into these robots, essentially, or, or constructs. Uh, and then so on and so forth, and then they had the dragons and blah, 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 get artifacts, come over and fight a Tarrasque that was laying waste to uh, Sharn, which, I mean, I never really got that far, but I had images of the Kraken uh, from... Uh, Clash of the Titans, you know, like attacking the city and they're flying it, blah, blah, blah. So, I mean, pop culture, that's my favorite resource. At Jack Marquez asks, how do you feel about spells not penetrating glass? What spells would you consider? Interesting. This will go to, uh, you know what, I'm going to answer this first and then Brad and Terry. <laughs> spells not penetrating glass, shit, okay. I really like that idea, but I would say that anything that, that specifies um, an area that you can see, you can cast through glass, no problem, because it specifically says an area you can see. 
anything that says you cannot cast around doors or or uh, through solid objects or whatnot, glass is a solid object. So that would that would count. I would have that stop spells. Um, anything that is a charm that requires someone to hear from the other side of the glass, they would not be charmed. There are some really good questions that you would that you could have around these. I I I think that I mean if you're shooting a magic missile at someone and it's got to penetrate the glass, wouldn't it be targeting the glass? Can you target someone with magic? I don't know. That's a great question. I can target an area. That makes sense to me. But can I shoot through glass or would the magic break the glass and then just stop? That is a great fucking question. I am... I will tell you this. Whatever I would decide to do, I would talk about this in, in session zero. So it's not a fucking surprise to people. I'm going to raise the ante a little bit. And I'm going to say, if you were going to say that you can't cast through glass are you able to cast underwater how thick does fog have to be interesting questions make up your own minds for your own campaigns i think it's interesting that spells can't penetrate glass i actually hadn't looked into that that much i hadn't actually noticed that um something i hadn't considered do i like the idea i think i do especially you know thicker glass if sound isn't able to penetrate you're not going to be able to use that I mean, all you have to do is smash the glass, and then you can cast through it. I think it's a really interesting idea, kind of like a, almost like a bulletproof shield or uh, bulletproof glass, right? A way to protect yourself. Uh, I think it's an interesting way of doing it. It kind of makes sense. I understand where they're coming from. That said, I don't see why you couldn't homebrew around it. Lead makes a lot more sense, something thick, something that would block any sort of energy, but... I can understand glass. Ah, uh, spells not penetrating glass. I think, uh, I'm not a fan of it. You know, I think that, well, no, it depends. I think it's still a physical barrier. So if there's a spell that cannot penetrate a physical barrier, I would even count this as, uh, it depends. Like, yeah, you can technically see somebody through glass, but that physical barrier I believe should prevent the spell. I see no reason why a spell can travel through a physical barrier, but if it's hmm yeah, I uh I think damage dealing spells absolutely should be able to penetrate glass. I think they should damage the glass and then and then be able to carry on through in the same sense that you know throwing a stone through a window will, the 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 projectile will keep going and, and damage whatever it hits on the other side. But uh, but if that's the rule, that's the rule. You know, I'm going to go along with it. That's a rule where I don't think it's worth the fight. What are we proving here? Just uh, causing a fuss across the internet uh, about an issue that 0.001% of the population even gives a shit about. So um, what do I think about spells not penetrating glass? I don't care either way, to be honest. Just tell me what the rule is and I'll go with it. Roll underscore or underscore dice from Reddit says, Zendrick sounds really cool. Which do you like better, Zendrick or Chult? Obviously, we got to start this off with Dave because it includes a freaking Eberron bit. So uh, then we'll hit Dan, who ran us through the Chult episode, and I'll I'll finish this one up afterwards, I guess. Um, like two questions ago, I just went over Zendrick. I like Zendrick. 
I would like to explore Chult, but the kind of game that I run, I mean, I don't even hold my guys to using spell components. I just assume that they're smart enough to have these components on them and not run out. Uh, we like playing a loose game. I don't deal with water skins and rations and even torches. Like, come on, guys, if you're in a dungeon, you're going to find some way to get light. Uh, I mean, make sure that you, we talk about it, but I'm not counting your number of torches. The, the idea of Chult and having your, your uh, insect repellent and stuff like that, that's not something that I'm super keen on playing with my group of people. Uh, but if, you know, I were to sit down with, you know, a table full of DMs and wanted to play something like Chult, uh, like a hard mode kind of thing, I would certainly be interested to sit down and try that. But, I mean, if I'm running the game, 10 out of 10, Zendrick, all the way. Zendrix does sound cool, man. Um, I, I do like it. Whether I like it better than Chult's, though, ah... Uh... I mean, Zendrix doesn't have swarms of Sturges flying through wanting to suck your blood uh, en masse. So, yeah. No, I, I, I think I'd go with Zendrix. I, I prefer to deal with Scorpions than Sturges. Being poisoned sounds better than, you know, having your blood drained by giant mosquitoes. I really like uh, Zendrix for the lore there. I like that we've got non-Underdark Drow. I always love jungles full of giants and shit. I'm all about King Kong and fucking kaiju and things, so that's really exciting to me. Chult has got some really cool rules. I like playing on hard mode. I like getting really specific with the details that we're playing with. But most importantly with Chult, I like the hex grid. I know a lot of people don't. I'm a big fan. So I would apply the Zendric lore to Chult, I guess, if I were going to homebrew it. I like them both for different reasons. The more that I read about Chult, the more I like it. Um, Zendrick has always got a, a soft spot in my heart. So I, I'm going to say Chult, uh, I guess. Dorian Mikulan asks, What is your favorite homebrew item you've created or encountered? Dan is on record as saying that his favorite is Tetanus, the sword that is a little bit rusty, and a whole lot evil. Terry, myself, and Brad will answer this. My favorite homebrew item that I've created or encountered. Ah, oh, man, these things are all so hard because there's so many you've been put in the spot. Homebrew item that I really like. You know what? Adam comes up with these crazy things sometimes, and he's been the DM that I've, you know, I've played with for the longest. He'll do things where there's no apparent obvious way obvious reason to use something he just creates this this characteristic of an item and it's up to you to figure it out uh i think he gave me an item once which huh what did i like what did i like oh there was the uh, the throne I, I think this was homebrew the throne that i believe enhanced all of your mental stats or gave advantage to all of your mental stats but gave a disadvantage to all of your physical stats if i'm remembering that correctly however this throne was in a vault somewhere that we couldn't we couldn't remove it from the vault or it was too heavy. It was made of ivory or something. So we had this ivory throne that we couldn't move around that enhanced all of one side of the character sheet, but disadvantage on the other side of the character sheet. And it was not obvious how we would use these things at all, but still it became very attractive. And, and, and I liked it so much because it seemed so powerful, yet it was so limited uh, in how we could use it. And those are the best items, the best items where there is a sacrifice 
to it. There's a, there's a sacrifice, something you have to overcome, something that weakens something somewhere else, because then you're not playing the game on easy mode. Then everybody's not walking around as Superman. Um, you're, you're, you're struggling, and I like to lean into that struggle. I need a challenge. I'm playing this game because I want a challenge. I'm not playing this game because I want to play Superman on easy mode. Like there is that. If you're playing the game because you want to be Superman in easy mode, that tells me that you're just not satisfied with your regular life because you need to pretend that you're Superman. But I don't know. I don't know people. But uh, there you go. There's my answer. My favorite homebrew item that I've created... I don't know. I really liked this throne that I made out of a gigantic tooth from some sort of massive um, kaiju-level Godzilla-style monster um, that was lost to history. There's this tooth. They made a throne out of it. They carved a throne out of it. It boosts all the mental stats. Um, it gives you advantage on any mental check or save while you're sitting in the throne. So your charisma, wisdom, and intelligence are way, way up. But it also enfeebles you. So your strength, dexterity, and constitution ability checks and saves have disadvantage on them. Uh, this also applies to attacks uh, while you are touching the chair. And you don't have to attune to it. Just touching the chair what is, is a big deal. This throne. I really love this throne. I wanted them to play with it. They found it in a vault. Couldn't figure out how to get it to their throne room. Because I really wanted to have battles and checks and stuff in and around this throne. Also, I like it because if they ever get dethroned, because this was in the player's own city, if they ever get dethroned for whatever reason, they're going to have a huge issue talking the next ruler out of the throne. So, I, I don't know. I really I really like that. I thought that it was neat. Um, Dan is, of course, a big fan of the stool, that uh, this little stone stool. He had an elderly character, an elderly dragonborn, who had this little... Stone stool, less than I think it was like an inch or two tall, but he would say the magic word and it would turn into a full blown wooden stool and he would sit on it. So every time Dan role played, he'd walk in, he'd reach into his pocket, he'd pull out this stool, he would say the magic word, he would put it down, and then he would sit. And he would walk us through it every fucking time, and then he would get up, say the word, pick up the stool again, and walk out. That was, it was a lot of fun, a lot of flavor to that. I've done a lot of weapons and shit too, but I mean, we've talked in the past about uh, my, my quiver of chance, um, and I think actually. If anybody is interested, send us a message through any one of our regular channels, I guess, and we will get you, if you if you give us an email address, we'll flip you the PDF. It's 101 randomized arrows and the rules on how to pull them out and use them from a magical quiver that, if you use it wrong, will fucking explode and kill everything around you. Favorite homebrew item that I myself have created was a long sword for the barbarian that gave plus one to attack. However, it was cursed simply with a bad smell. I like little curses like that, ones that don't necessarily cause major havoc within the gameplay itself, but they add an interesting story element. So whenever you were holding this sword, you just stink real bad and people don't really want to talk to you. It doesn't actually have a negative mod charisma modifier directly but it certainly increases the dc of checks for charisma and things like that when made while holding it um and i just kind of like the idea of you know silly flavor stuff like that um i have a mirror that when you look into it it tells you your deepest desire i also like that one um yeah i know it was stolen from harry potter but that's fine um i like taking things like that and i think homebrew items need to inject flavor more than they need to actually inject 
statistics or abilities. Um, I really like the idea of using homebrew items and magical items to basically create character within your world, something that, you know, isn't necessarily going to impact the flow of the game, but at the same time, it injects a lot of character when your party meets an NPC who's maybe creating these little items, right? Especially Dan likes gnomes. I picture gnomes just creating all sorts of little items like these that are littered throughout the world. In and of themselves, they aren't really necessarily helpful or even useful. They're just interesting. And I think that's the best use for homebrew. Oh, shit. Here we go. Here comes Pepperina Sparkle Gem. Why D&D? Why not Pathfinder or Warhammer or a different RPG? Let's kick this out to Dave, Brad, and Megan. Why D&D? Why not Pathfinder or Warhammer or a different RPG? Uh, so I see this question is from Peps. Um, because D&D is better. Why D&D? It's because that's what my friends were playing. Uh, Dan got me back into the game. We actually started playing Pathfinder originally. That's where I got into tabletop role-playing games, and my first introduction was through Pathfinder version 1, because at that point, 5th edition wasn't out yet, and people were really hating on 4th edition, so Pathfinder was the way to go. That said, Pathfinder is involved and clunky so unless you have a bunch of people who are really into role-playing games and into the math side of it and things like that i it's built for specific groups whereas fifth edition i feel is a lot easier to introduce to almost anyone i mean i brought it out for christmas one year for my family who's never played a tabletop role-playing game or really any sort of board game aside from you know monopoly or chess or things like that and they were all really easily able to get into D&D. They were able to make their characters with a little bit of help from me. And then when it came into playing the game, it just unfolded naturally. There's not a lot of barrier to entry for 5th edition, whereas I feel like, especially for character creation and even just, you know, doing the menial tasks, Pathfinder's a lot heavier of a game. We did play Call of Cthulhu on the podcast. Hopefully my episode should be out soon if you haven't heard it already. And I really enjoyed that system. But again, I think it's only for people who are really involved and into uh, tabletop role-playing games. If you don't want to dive too deep at the start, I think 5th edition is a perfect way to introduce it. For myself, I do actually play other games than D&D. In fact, since COVID has started, I feel like I have played and participated in a few more L5R um, sessions than actually D&D 5th edition. I'm in one campaign right now for D&D and that's a Strahd campaign so as classic as you can get and then I'm kind of participating in a L5R campaign that I've oh my alarm went off <laughs> you can use that if you want um right now I'm playing in a, a Strahd campaign which is as classic as you can get or I'm also also actually playing and participating in an L5R campaign that has been going on for oh I want to say like 10 years um one of my friends started DMing in L5R many, many moons ago, and it's been one of those campaigns that people come in and out of over the years, but it's in the same world. So it's been built for over 10 years. Um, so it's very interesting to get into play. It sucks when you haven't played for quite some time and then you get sucked back in. Um, the thing I love about L5R, which I do recommend, is that it is very much a... Sorry, I'm about L5R, I mean Legend of the Five Rings, just in case anyone hasn't picked that up yet. Uh, it is a very Japanese culture-based, more role-play style, less battle style. Uh, I think the only time I've ever really seen a battle when playing this game is either a war siege or um, some kind of a duel that occurs. But otherwise, it is very much just a bunch of people around a table playing politics and yelling at each other. So 
if you're not into that style of game, um, I would not attempt it. But otherwise, if you are more in the style of the, you like the role playing, you like the drama, you like, you know, the, the communication styles of trying to figure out people's ulterior motives. That's kind of the game that that is that we're playing. So I highly recommend that. Otherwise, I've only played Pathfinder once in my life. I just don't hate it. It's just that I don't know a lot of people that actually run Pathfinder games in my life. And Warhammer, I have played in my lifetime. It's just not one that I want to spend my time doing. Plus, a lot of the places where you could go to actually play a successful Warhammer game have been closed since COVID started. So it would be interesting to see how that kind of community is affected. Makes me sad, actually, to think about. That sucks. Number 16, Nick dot underscore dot long asks, what's stopping me from using dispel magic to kill a sorcerer? That's a great question. And we're going to throw that to Dan and Dave, but I think I'm going to start because I've, I've, well, I've got some opinions. Of course, I've got some opinions. Fuck, when do I not have opinions? Good job, Adam. <laughs> yeah, okay, so... Dispel magic to kill a sorcerer. Um, let me just say, I don't think you can kill a sorcerer because they're not made of magic. So first of all, you would depower a sorcerer if you did that. I love this idea. I want there to be a greater dispel magic. I think there needs to be levels of magic as well, like god magic, dragon magic, uh, giant magic, uh, ancient magic. You should like. There should be different levels to it. Just because we have access to level 1 through 9 doesn't mean there shouldn't be level 20 mat like spells. They should exist like that, and they should be fucking epic and incredible and whatnot. And I think that you should be able to dispel standard magic out of a magical creature, like just turn off Fey normal with like a level 8 spell. I like that. To kill outright? Nah, I got other ways to do it. So I, I, I'm not going to kill a sorcerer with dispel magic, but an anti-magic field? would not just mean that you can't cast spells or use magical items, but that I think, you know what? A, a greater anti-magic field that saps magic out of you, that it's going to take a long rest before you can even cast again. That's scary, too. I, 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 okay, easy answer. The rules. Ha-ha! Uh, sorcerers aren't magical in the same way a spell is magic. Right, their their blood allows them to tap into the weave to be able to pull out magical effects, but that doesn't make it in and of itself magical. Uh, uh, you wouldn't call a door handle a door, and really, that is what the sorceress bloodline is. It doesn't make them inherently magical. It just m makes them able to pull on the weave without the training or the pact or whatever else it is. So. You can't use dispel magic to, you know, pop a sorcerer out of existence just like you can't use dispel magic to pop a dragonborn out of existence. They're they're flesh, the blood, the organics. It's it's not like the, the the natural order of things that is not magical is going to limit you. However, dispel magic is a third level spell and so are fireballs, so are lightning bolts, so are flame arrows. So's erupting earth. So's animate dead. So's, I don't know, Melf's minute meteors. You got options if you want to erase a player at third level, friends. Ooh, ooh, ooh. Use Sleet Storm. That'd be fun. What's stopping me from using Dispel Magic to kill a sorcerer? Okay. 
I see what you're getting at. Magic courses through their veins, but it's not... I feel like... Huh. That was a weird one. Interesting. Um, no, no, hold on a sec. I'm going to go back to number 15. I didn't give Peps a good reason. Uh, why D&D? Why not Pathfinder or Warhammer or a different RPG? Uh, really? Because D&D is the only one of those I have ever really played. Uh, we've done Call of Cthulhu and I really like it, but that era is not really for everyone. The The sorcerers, barbarians, high fantasy uh, setting just seems to be more palatable. Um, uh, it's easier for me to hand wave magic uh, in a fantasy setting than it is for my players to accept that some guy in 1920s is casting spells. Uh, it's just it's just more palatable for for that uh, side of things. Uh, Pathfinder, I never did it, although I have played a shit ton of 3.5 uh, and Warhammer. Uh, I am not rich, so. Uh, all of the uh, uh, minis and all that stuff, uh, it's not really my my shtick. Uh, all right, back number 16. What's stopping me from using Dispel Magic to kill a sorcerer? Uh, because that's not how Dispel Magic works. You're canceling a spell. You're not canceling a person. Um, that's just, like, am I wrong? You know, I get that there's, like, magic in them. But that's, like, you can't, no. No, no, that's not how it works. What's stopping me from using Dispel Magic to kill a sorcerer? Uh, because it's not how it was designed, and uh, it just would break the game, really. Oh, here's another one from Peps. She says, what are some good questions to ask your DM in Session Zero? This is a great question. Oh, an excellent question to ask your DM in session zero would be, what kind of snacks do you like? I think I've now heard Adam admit that he's always sad when he DMs because he does not get to partake in the snacks as much as we do. So I definitely feel that if we ask more often, what is a snack that you feel you can have while DMing and not being a distraction? I definitely would probably ask them what kind of snacks they want. But otherwise, I feel like the main conversations are the same usually in a session zero. But I think the most important thing to establish with the DM is what kind of story are they trying to tell? Are, are they a DM who is interested in the drama side of things? Or are we playing a fighting campaign? Or are we playing a political campaign? Like I think that def- definitely sets the tone is just figuring out what style of game you're playing. Um, that way people can kind of build their characters so that they can be a part of this world and not be fighting against it the whole time. Like I can't imagine a DM building a very political world and then... All of a sudden you have a team of murder hobos that you're spending more time controlling than actually enjoying the world that created. But I mean, if you're going to enjoy that, enjoy it. But otherwise, I I feel like for a DM to have fun, understanding what they're trying to do uh, would be the first step as a player. Some good questions to ask your DM in session zero. I think once you've been through everything and you've let the DM speak and you've gone across the rules or even actually maybe before character creation, I think you need to ask what are the hard no's? What is absolutely 100% off the table. And that's not because you're coming into the game trying to be a dick. Um, it's That's because you need to know where you're going with that character. What you're leading up to. What their agendas are going to be. Side missions. Their values. Uh, their fears. Um, so the, the best way is to get the, the absolute boundary for that. What are the absolute hard no's? Not even with character creation. Uh, but with themes. 
within the game. You know, some people like a very PG game. Um, I prefer an R-rated game, but that's that's not because I'm just looking to cause absolute chaos all the time. It's because um, I want to feel fear in that game. I want to feel stress in that game. I want to feel uh, all of that anxiety and that challenge that goes with it so that when I feel the contrast, uh, when I feel the joy, uh, when I feel the sense of achievement, the pride, that is amplified so much more because of the absolute hardship that we go through. And sometimes you have to deal with real issues in a D&D game, real themes. Um, but I want to know what's completely off the table um, so that uh, so that I know where I stand and so that if there's anything which hasn't been listed as being off the table, I can put it forward as a suggestion. There are there are what I would consider to be obvious themes that should be off the table, um, but they aren't always. You know, they aren't always. Sometimes people have, have have lived their lives where certain things have never been an issue for them, and so they don't think to bring it up. So, what are the absolute hard no's? Is an important question for me. Some good questions to ask your DM in session zero. Now, Adam and I have kind of tossed around the idea of throwing, of putting together a um, really, really in-depth session zero guide. Um, you guys should give us a message, see if there's something you want to see from us. But anyways, um, as for good questions to ask your DM um, in session zero, uh, what level of magic is going to be around? Uh, what level of... Uh, political intrigue is going like are we hoping to explore getting into these kind of questions is really going to give you an idea to build a character who is not completely useless Uh, it's like building a sailor when you're in a campaign that will never be on a boat right like it it, that's a very surface level example but that's kind of what we're looking at is you don't want to be pulling on um you don't want to be rolling up a character that has resources that you'll never use, right? So those are going to be the kind of questions you want to ask your DM. Um, you could also ask questions about like what level of magic items you are going to be using. That that just gives you something to look forward to. Also, if there's anything you specifically want to run, ask your DM, hey, I really want to fight goblins where you're planning on a lot of goblins. Or I've been looking at these new monsters from, um, I don't know, uh, Ravnica. Can you throw some of these cool Ravnica monsters in the campaign? I understand you're running a module and they're not in there, but if you could figure out a way to implement those, those would be fun, right? Giving your DM guidance through like the subtle question is... uh, Always helpful. As a lazy DM, I love that kind of stuff, man. Like, I, I love getting a player coming up to me and being like, hey, Sky Swimmers are pretty badass, hey? When, what's the what's the likelihood we're ever going to pl- f- face one of those? Well, because you've asked, far higher than 30 seconds ago before you did, right? So those are kind of the questions you can ask in a session zero. More on the serious side of things, you can ask the questions of, hey, are we going to be addressing, uh, like, a lot of body horror, in this because I'm not comfortable with that. I'd really like to avoid that, right? These are going to be the kind of uh, avoiding questions that you should ask. Things that make you uncomfortable as a player sitting in a room full of people or on a, let's be honest, it's COVID time. So on a Zoom chat full of people, if there's something that's going to cause an issue, asking your DM to avoid it is top of the line, top question that you should ask. All right, coming into the home stretch now. At Artfingers Reads, Artfingers, 
I hope that's not Arthur's fingers. At Art Fingers Reads asks, if you had to end the world with scissors and three toothpicks, how would you do it? I think I'm going to... No, I'm not going to give away my plans. We're going to ask Terry, Dave, and Dan. What kind of amateur shit show needs an entire three toothpicks? <laughs> if I had to end the world with scissors and three toothpicks, how would I do it? Um, oh, let's get serious on this one. Look, uh, the world is uh, created, ended, um, influenced uh, by ideas and by people uh, much more than it is anything else. If you go through history, you're going to find this. So how would I end the world with scissors and three toothpicks? You know what I'd use the toothpicks for? I'd use the toothpicks uh, to pick my teeth, to keep my teeth clean, to keep my teeth organized, uh, to make sure that I don't get cavities so that I have a very presentable and happy smile. And I'd use the scissors to, to clip my nails so that when I reach out and I shake people's hands, my hands are in good order. And the reason for this is, is that first impressions count for everything. Your opinions on uh, on things doesn't matter. In life, you got to play the odds. Play the odds in this game of life, okay? And, and it is much more likely that you're going to be trusted, that you are going to be taken seriously, that your ideas are going to be given the time of day when you uh, present yourself in such a way that you suggest that. You suggest that you're put together. You suggest um, to people that you're organized, that you that you think things through, that you are picturing the future. Because disorganization is just a lacking measurement, a lagging measurement of something that you screwed up previously. Um, you and you, that can be true to anything. So I'd use a the toothpicks to make sure that I'm presentable in my smile and my face. I'd use the scissors to make sure that my hands are presentable, so that my first impressions are taken properly, so that my ideas and how I influence the world are taken seriously. Um, and uh, and that that is how I will end the world, because once people are listening to you, people will do the most extreme, crazy things if you can get them to trust you. And I think we see that in the world every day. So there's a serious answer to a silly question. Okay. If you had to end the world with scissors and three toothpicks, how would you do it? Uh, I mean, I probably wouldn't. But that's not what you're looking for. So, in the world with scissors and three toothpicks, how would I do it? Uh, this one's simple. You ever read that book, One Red Paperclip, where the guy like starts with a paperclip and like trades it all the way up to be in until like, I get the house or whatever? Uh, I would do that. I would just start with the scissors and the three toothpicks. And I would offer the three toothpicks uh, for something menial and slowly upgrade. And if people were to decline my offer, I would stab them in the fucking throat with the goddamn scissors uh, and then uh, move on to the next person until I got what I wanted. Moving my way all the way up to, oh, I don't know, uh, nuclear weapons and then laying waste to everyone. Seems pretty easy to me. Where do you people come up with these questions? No, seriously. Art, are you okay? Like, is... Are you trying to come up with the plot for some sort of Bond villain? Is 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 there something going on we should know about? Do you just happen to have a way to contact us through the internet, but also just a pair of scissors and three toothpicks and a lot of ambition? I I don't know. I know what I do know that uh, toothpick under the toothpicks under the nails would be a horrible torture device. I also know that uh, depending on the pair of scissors you get, they can be quite large and intimidating. If I had to end the world with that, well, I mean, okay, very simply, uh, use the 
scissors to draw a arcane rune uh, ritual in the ground with which to summon uh, Cthulhu to this realm. Use the toothpicks as candlesticks to add to the summoning power. Um, of course, I'd use the scissors to also make sure I have more than enough blood to offer as a sacrifice to uh, the great Cthulhu. And when he has come to our realm and blessed us with um, the wonder of beautiful insanity, then we could say that the world has not really ended, but has finally begun. At McDaniel Nillick says, I've been DMing the same group for over a year now, and everyone has always said after a game that they love the campaign, and they've had a fun time every game. Well, the last two games, one of my players has not really talked or been into it, and I talked to them today and they said they feel like they're not being heard. They said it's not my fault, and that it's the other players who don't seem to pay attention to them, and they feel left out for most of the game. So, I'm just trying to figure out what I can do to make them feel more involved, and how to approach the topic to my other players that they shouldn't shut down every idea from that player. Full disclosure, this is an old question from well over a year ago that just has never been rolled before on the table, and that does happen sometimes when we randomly select. So, I hope that it's been all resolved and everything now, McDaniel Nilluck, but let's kick it off to Brad, Megan, and Terry with some insights for other people on how to handle this. This is an excellent question. I think one that comes up at a lot of tables, uh, especially when you have players who aren't necessarily boisterous or tables where you have players who just really take over the table. Uh, one way to get people more involved and feel like their voice is going to be heard is create moments that create space specifically for that player. Bring in an NPC who specifically wants to talk to that player, and if somebody tries to interject, even have your NPC say, look, I'm not talking to you, I don't want to hear from you, I'm curious about what this player has to say. Honestly, if you're adults, have a conversation with the other players. Say, hey, look, so-and-so is not feeling like they're getting a chance to speak. I know you're really excited to share your bit, but try and make space. Remember, we're all playing this game together, we all want to have our moments in the sun, and yeah, be adults about it. Talk about it if it needs to be talked about. Um, otherwise, yeah, like I said, creating space for players to shine. I think it should be done for all players. There should be points in every plot where during an arc, one character is kind of the pivotal point of that arc. There will be characters maybe from their backstory, maybe characters that they've come across already in the campaign earlier that took an interest in them or they took an interest in. Just introduce opportunities that specifically cater to one player. Now, don't keep catering to the same player over and over again, obviously, unless that player's just super out of it in all of their cases, but yeah, make room for all your players to enjoy themselves. All right. So table politics can get pretty spicy. Um, and I feel like a lot of the time what people don't realize is that people usually have will have an emotional response to one event and then make every other event that might occur after that about that specific event. It's just kind of what our brains like to naturally do is sit on the negative and not kind of look at the positive anymore. So I feel like if you've got a character who is feeling like their team is not listening to them, honestly, you're all adults. Maybe talk about it. If you feel like their your table is not emotionally evolved enough to have a conversation like that, maybe have a conversation like that in character. Build an NPC that's going to have that conversation with the team and be like, hey, like you guys don't look like you're operating as a team. Look at this weird guy over here in the corner. Why are you not communicating with him? Or create an NPC that brings that character back into the game, right? 
The other thing you need to establish and understand is like it just it's a balancing game. You're not going to make everyone happy. You will have sessions where two out of five are happy. You will have sessions where one out of five is happy. And you'll every once in a while have that silver lining day where all five might feel okay, right? Like I know I've had games where I've left a table mad as hell and then one other character is having like the day of their life, right? So I almost feel like talking to that player who's not feeling heard, it might be you because you're not managing the table as well as you could. But at the same time, it might just be them who is in a sour mindset and needs to get themselves out. And it might not be your responsibility. But of course, keeping up that wave of communication is a way to kind of establish what that root cause issue is. So just keep talking to them and keep figuring out what it is they want out of their game. Because maybe they're playing a political game, but they just want to hit stuff. Maybe you're playing a game where they just hit stuff, but they want to get political and the team doesn't want to, right? So start establishing those kinds of barriers and groundings, I guess. So that was a long answer, but I feel like I've dealt with this in game, in life, in work, in friendships. Like it's a common thing. And I think as a DM, don't take it personally. Humans just be mad. Oh, um, yeah. The topic of a certain player feeling like they're not being heard. Hey, DM, you know what? It's up to you. The, 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 the player is waving their hands here and saying, hey, I am being discluded. I am being left out. And uh, as you, as the uh, as the adjudicator, as the as the referee of that game, it's up to you to do that. Okay, it sounds like your it sounds like your horses are running the show here, and uh, and uh, everybody and you're being taken for a ride. Okay, it's up to you to quieten everybody down. It's up to you to say I I, I don't know your, your names, but it's up to you to say, hey, Dave, what do you think? Okay, thanks, Michaela. We're just gonna let Jessica speak for a second. Okay, Jess, great idea. Everybody else, what do you think? Um, and you know you can. People can be influenced on ideas, okay? Where people are, are influenced easy. It, it's an easy example would be like just thinking off the top of my head. You know, you could be like, yeah, if if Dave's not being heard, that's an excellent idea, Dave. So here's the options we have, guys. We have Dave's um, idea about using a, an incredible fireball spell to burst through and cause absolute chaos um, and and put the enemy on their back foot um, and see how they react to it. Or you know we can use the uh, the uh, the generic idea of just using mundane items over here, and that yeah may seem like an unethical approach, but it's being used because a part of the game um, is is being played w w without those same ethics, right? Somebody's been feeling left out, and maybe they just need a little bit of a push. Maybe the 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 party needs a little bit of influence to show them that maybe they should listen to this person. But ultimately, it's up to you as the DM to direct this. If you tell, if your player is telling you that they are not feeling heard, what they are saying to you as the DM who is running the game, they are saying to you, you are not allowing me to be heard. Now, I don't know the total ins and outs of this game, but that's what it sounds like based off the vast majority of times that I've come across this situation. It's up to you. You're the DM. Okay, and we are wrapping up the final question from Pepperina underscore Sparkle Gem, of course. Fuck. We gotta start. She's never allowed to ask questions again. She asks, if you were a weapon, what weapon would you be? This will go to Brad. Mm, I'll take a stab at this. Get it. And uh, and I think we'll, uh, we'll wrap up with Megan. Let's be honest, you all saw this answer coming. Mjolnir would be the weapon that I would be, or some sort of D&D equivalent of it. A mace, one-handed hammer, with power to call lightning. Um, we all know 
It's my favorite weapon. We all know that Thor is one of my favorite all-time fictional characters, so no surprise there. I would 100% want to be Mjolnir. That said, I do love a great sword. I'm thinking of the Holy Avenger sword for paladins, because paladins are a favorite class of mine as well. So that's a good second choice. So Mjolnir, number one. Otherwise, Holy Avenger. Um, It's very clear, Peps. The weapon that I would be would be a big, hefty, two-foot-long, 25-pound dildo. And don't tell me that's not a weapon. (laughs) I thought about this one for quite some time in many other aspects of my life, just because I feel like I've been asked this question before, and I feel like I answer it differently every single time. So I feel like a weapon that represents me, of course, would be something brutal and angering so probably like something nifty and awesome like a bastard sword or just something that can cause a lot of damage in a single swing but then i'd laugh to myself and i said you know what i would probably be a flail mostly because it represents my personality style as the way it is right now uh you know when feeling good and feeling graceful you know i can cause a lot of damage when handling situations correctly but otherwise on a regular basis i just look like i'm flailing about so there you go (laughs) well that's it for this mailbag episode of the it's a mimic podcast thanks to everyone for listening in and thanks of course to the other five that are out there in freaking covid land doing their own thing we always have a blast doing these episodes but we have a bigger blast doing it when we're all in person if you'd like to support the podcast you can head over to www.itsamimic.com and check out the donate button that we have there or the store where you can get some funky merch or just tell your friends in your D&D group about us. Word of mouth really helps, and it's really how we are getting our voices out there. You can tell your friends and anyone else who might be interested that we're on Spotify, iTunes, and YouTube, as well as dozens of other podcast apps. And of course, we can be found on Instagram, Facebook, and r slash It's a Mimic on Reddit. Everybody stay safe out there. And I got a bonus question uh, just for everyone else because, uh, shit, why not? I, I want to ask a bonus question. So, hypothetically, everyone, if Wizards of the Coast made the most inappropriate 5th ed book of all time, what would its name be? And how many nerds would buy it? And would you buy it? Alright, so if Wizards of the Coast put out The Wizard's Guide to Sex or The Wizard Karma Sutra, that would probably be it. Um, how many nerds would buy it? Probably most of them. And would I buy it? Absolutely not. Not my cup of tea, but I'm not into the inappropriate stuff. I make a joke here and there, but it ain't my style. Oh, gosh. The most inappropriate book of all time. Um, The most inappropriate book. Our minds always go to sex for this type of stuff, don't they? That's the way we want to go. That's the, that's still the biggest taboo out there is something sexual. It's just as the years go on, it gets, uh, it gets a little more. <laughs> I, don't, I guess it would be going against whatever we consider to be. Oh my god, man! Wizards made the most inappropriate. 
I don't know what the most inappropriate fifth edition book out there would be, but here's going, what I'm going to tell you from knowing nerds. The vast majority of nerds, i got to be careful with this answer, the vast majority of nerds that I know can be sometimes easily offended, not easily offended, more easily offended than maybe other people on certain topics. And so if there was something that they would deem to be inappropriate, not only would they not buy it, they would probably campaign that other people should not buy it. But no, I don't know what the title would be. What I do know is if it was deemed to be inappropriate, some people would get hurt. They would get loud. Everybody would lose their jobs. Would I buy it? Yeah, I'll buy it. Do I think most nerds will buy it? No. And I think they'll probably try and stop you from buying it. Made the most inappropriate... Oh, inappropriate 5e book of all time. Um, I mean, the most inappropriate Dungeons & Dragons book of all time has been the... Um, uh, Frick, I forget the name of it. The 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 sex book um, that gives you ideas how to role play sexual encounters in your Dungeons and Dragons, which that's a fun experience around a table of your friends. Let me let me tell you. Um, but <sighs> if that book was any example, what was it? The Book of Carnal Secrets or the Book of I uh, forget what it was called. I'll have to Google it later. But uh, a lot of people bought that book. I bought that book because uh, I too was once a horny teenager. So um, would I buy it now? Not likely. Uh, I mean, Terry would. Terry probably would have written it. I'm not convinced Terry didn't write the original one. Did Terry write the original one? There's some messed up stuff in that book. Gotta have been Terry. Uh, okay, so... Uh, this one's really easy. So I feel like um, to go real inappropriate, you do like Xanathar's Guide to Everything. No, no, no. Like, like everything. Huh? Huh? Something like that. Uh, I mean, it's simply you could do the, the Sword Hose Adventure Guide. You know, there, there, there's all sorts of fun options. Uh, how many nerds would buy it? Every single one. Uh, because... Y'all like that stuff. Y'all are the reason Dan's furniture business is uh, going strong. Uh, and would I buy it? Uh, <clears throat> no, I would download the PDF from somewhere. Uh, yes, I would buy it. <clears throat> I feel like you could just make all of the current books extremely inappropriate. And I think that we have proved that over the last how odd many years we've been doing this podcast. I don't think we need to make one. I think that you could just edit and adjust the current material we have to suit your fantasy needs. That's all I'm going to say about that. All right. Are you ready for this? For those of you that don't want to hear me talk about this, you can you can stop the fucking episode now. So, erotic books from Wizards of the Coast. They would be called, in no particular order, The Player's Handjob, The Dungeon Master's Guy, Porn Star Manual, The Curse of Wad. Farter Set, Baldur's Gape, Spit Roasts of Saltmarsh, Sadistic Odysseys of Theros, The Essentials Clit, Headboard Posts Adventurer's Guide, Eberron, Rising for the Last Whore, Whore of the Dragon Queen, Rhyme of the Frost Maidenhead, Mordenkainen's Tome of Hose, Exhibitionists Incorporated, Into the Abyss, <laughs> Princess of the Apocalypse, Womb of Accumulation, Thighs of Tiamat, Xanathar's Guide to 
anything. The Tortles package, one grung inside and Yomama rising. We have the Scoutmaster's Guide to Ravnica, which I feel really bad about that joke. <laughs> Porn King's Thunder. Waterdeep, Dungeon with the Sad Stage. <laughs> Yikes. Waterdeep, Dragon Shizen. Tales from My Yawning Portal. Scandal Creep Mysteries. Volo's Bride of Monsters. And of course, Tasha's Cauldron of Everything. And yes, I would buy every fucking one of those. And it, <clears throat> I'm dying of thirst. <sighs> so much better. Keep scrolling, scrolling, scrolling. What?